You are listening to the Weird Learning Podcast with your hosts, Dr. Tracy Dix and Dr. Alex Patel. Today's episode is Adapting from A-Levels to Academic Life at University. Production team, Kia Morant and Patricia Marie Solis. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Weird Learning Podcast. We're really excited today to welcome two special guests. We've got two A-level students on our episode today, Harry and Emily. Would you like to introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Emily. I study um, religious studies, maths and chemistry at A-level, and um, I want to go into philosophy as an undergraduate. Hi, I'm Harry. I'm studying geography, art and RS as well. Um, I'm looking at studying anthropology at undergraduate. Great. Well, we're very glad to have you with us. So thank you very much for coming on our show today. And today's episode is all about A-level assignments and the differences between how you study at A-level and how you pass your assignments versus what learning is like at university, what the assignments are like and what the expectations are like so that we can help um, people looking to go into university to kind of bridge that gap in their knowledge and experience. I'd like you to reach pick one of your courses that you're doing at the moment and just imagine or, you know, go back in your memory and relive what it's like to study it. So could you tell us a little bit about um, what kinds of lessons you have, what kind of uh, learning environments, you know, do you do group work and things like that? So I do two STEM subjects, maths and chemistry, and they're very different to my um, RS um, lessons. In my maths and chemistry, it's very much just... Um, learning facts on the board with the teacher, pretty much how it is at GCSE, and then doing like practice questions and things like that. Basically, the only difference between like maths and chemistry at GCSE compared to A-level is that the size of the classes and obviously the content, but learning it is is relatively the same. Whereas with RS, it's much more group, like it's just a discussion. The entire lesson is um, discussing opinions and what you think about each like each philosopher's ideas or concepts okay great um so what uh, are the group sizes like so in chemistry and rs it's about six seven people whereas maths is obviously quite a big class so i think it's about 23 maybe something like that but so it is smaller than gcse and i like that a lot more <laughs> it's much nicer to have a smaller class and it feels like all of you actually care a lot more and the teacher it just works really well with the teacher because you get a lot more attention. So I, I really like that. Yeah. And I guess you're more accountable, aren't you? Yeah. yeah. So uh, know what you're on about. So you have to be able yeah. to answer questions. What about yourself, Harry? So in art, a lot of it is sort of just being given what you need to do. As long as you're on the right track, you've sort of left your own devices to get it done and be responsible for having it completed on time. If you need help, you can obviously go to our teachers and they can peer over your shoulder to make sure you're not screwing up anything majorly. But a lot of that is sort of left on our own whereas with geography it's quite a lot of just making sure we've got all the notes and all the case studies so it is a lot of listening to our teachers and then turning that into answers and things and that's usually what most lessons look like and obviously because we are going to do like a, a big study like our NEA we'll have to do our own research and go out and we'll be in the computers uh, computer rooms a lot and do so they let you out into the real world as well yeah um yeah and have to turn our notes into actual essays and work that makes sense so then what are the class sizes like art only has about six 
And then geography is like, still quite small. It's just 16 of us. It's small enough to ask for help. <laughs> so it sounds like you have to manage your um, kind of studies a bit, like your timings and your deadlines yeah. and things like that. Could you say a bit more about that? With art, the deadlines are slightly, they're always a, a bit earlier than like exams. So you sort of have the very final ones will be quite close, but you'll probably be done with your art exam that halfway through doing your other ones, I think. So you've got to actually make sure that you're still studying for the rest of them and you're not putting too much effort in one. Like you can't be like, oh, I've got a test coming up next week. I'm just not going to do any art. You've got to make sure that you're being equal with them so you don't fall behind in anything. That's quite important, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but hard, but important. Yeah, you sound like really useful skills. Yeah, can then translate nicely to university, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because Emily, you've talked about um, practice questions and preparing for exams. And that's something that we often recommend as well at university, isn't it? So for on modules where you have got exams, you know, students often ask, like, how do we prepare for these? And, you know, our answer is it's most effective to study by using practice questions because you have to practice at formulating your answers to them. Emily, you mentioned about formulating answers, whereas I think a lot of students expect to learn everything, memorize it, and then somehow magically be able to apply that knowledge in an exam setting when you're under a time limit. So you've got that added pressure. And you've never thought about things a certain way before. And, and you're kind of piling on those expectations on yourself. So that's quite a lot to deal with at once. So shall we make a comparison to um, what studying is like at university? Mm -hmm. So quite often people talk about uh, a couple of different metaphors. The first one is like, you know, studying at school and college and A-level. It's a bit like learning to swim in a swimming pool. Whereas going to university is a bit like taking what you know and using it to do wild swimming in the sea. And actually, that's something that I do quite often. I love wild swimming. Um, so it means that there's a lot of stuff that you do already um, in terms of your time management, you're preparing for exams, group discussions, and things like that, that you can still adapt to university. So it's not completely unfamiliar, but you're now doing it in, a, I guess, a bigger setting with more freedom. So you have to manage your own time a lot more. You are independent studiers now. And you can also decide what direction to take your reading a bit more, which hopefully means you enjoy it more. Because instead of saying, oh, no, do I really have to learn all about photosynthesis in this much detail? You can think, oh, well, actually, I want to know about the gendered research around photosynthesis, which female... Is there gendered research around I bet there is, if you try hard enough. Um, but, you know, you might be looking into the work of female researchers on photosynthesis and what happened to them historically. The other metaphor is uh, thinking of university a bit like a gym. So you pay your £9,000 <laughs> subscription. That's a very expensive. And this gives you access to everything you need. But it's up to you how you choose to use it and how much effort you put in. So it gives you access to experts. So these are like your personal trainers, I guess, um, your lecturers, your personal tutors who you can interact with. You can obviously hear them in lectures, but you can talk to them outside lectures. You can contact them. You obviously have your classes. So instead of it being spin classes or aqua aerobics, it's your lectures and your seminars. So you're expected to go to all of those pretty much. You know, you decide how much you interact within those sessions. So quite often lectures, you know, you'll be spoken at and there's not so much room for discussion. So you might need to have strategies to kind of make the most of that and keep yourself awake in some situations. <laughs> you have access to all the resources of the gym. 
or in this case, the university. So it might be the libraries and access to um, articles online. You have all sorts of equipment that are appropriate for your subject area. So it might be practical classes or practical labs. But very much like a gym, it's about how much effort you choose to put in. You know, are you going there quite often? Or are you actually just going to the lectures and that's it and expecting the same results? Because obviously it's going to be different. And as I've said before, you also get to choose which bits you concentrate on. You can decide which areas that you want to kind of do the further reading in and which you're going to pursue. Do you have anything resembling lectures at the moment? No, that's what I'm most worried about, I think. Yeah. Okay. With RS especially, we all sit around the table, we push all the tables into the middle of the room and we have like a nice discussion about whether we like this philosopher or his ideas. Whereas lectures seem very intimidating. <laughs> You're all just sat looking at this one person who's speaking at you for like an hour or however long. So I guess it's not really comparable. I don't know. How do you feel? Yeah, I think one thing that you said in one of your podcasts was that about trusting your notes. And I always think that when I'm being talked about by a teacher and I'm like trying to get something down, I definitely worry about how will I know that yeah. what I've even got is worth anything or like I don't want to waste my time trying to like make sure I've got something when actually it's not relevant or like I've misunderstood it, you know? We don't yeah, because do... at A-level you get told like um you need to know this you don't need to know this so when we're in a lesson she'll be like okay you don't need to write anything on this slide and then when she goes to the next slide and she'll be like okay well, just write this little paragraph here right at uni you do whatever you need mm-hmm. <laughs> like some lecturers do kind of do that especially in the first year to kind of say you know this is the type of stuff I expect you to know and this is where I'm just waffling about this because <laughs> I'm really interested in it but really, as you're getting into your second and third year, you should be, you know, pursuing your own interests and it, it's up to you because there is no limits to, you know, what you can look into. Lectures have changed a bit since we were students. When I was an undergraduate, lectures were not recorded and there was no opportunity to go back to it. So you sat through the lecture, got what you could out of it, and then that was it. And nowadays, in many universities, lectures are recorded they're made available afterwards, they're indexed and and searchable, so they're really easy to go back to afterwards if you want to. Having said that, though, it's not something I necessarily encourage because I've also seen a lot of students who go, I'm really overwhelmed because I go to a lecture, I don't understand what's going on, and then I go through the recording and I still don't really understand. It takes me like four hours to go through that lecture. And if you're thinking about back in the day when Alex and I were students, we wouldn't even have had those opportunities. So I think then it'd be more a case of being at your assignments, perhaps, and thinking about, well, what sort of research do I need to look for in order to help me tackle this assignment? The lecture would be long gone and forgotten, if I'm honest. The danger nowadays is that people will go back to the recording and then annotate everything, or like transcribe the entire thing. And that's not really learning. Whereas you want to be actively engaging with knowledge it goes back to what you were saying about regurgitating things, and that's not really what you want to do at university. And I think, you know, the students who do this and get overwhelmed by lectures and their recordings have that sort of perfectionist attitude that I was talking about with you guys on your podcast, where they just think that in order to be working optimally as a student or in order to do the best they can, they have to like memorize everything or know everything that's in your lecture notes. And you don't have to. And the thing I would say is, a lecture often gives you an introduction to a topic and sometimes depending on a lecturer's interest. So like Alex was saying earlier on, someone might decide to talk about a certain area just because they're interested in it. 
if you had a different lecture, lecturer, they would give you a different take on the same subject. So what your lecturer delivers to you is not everything there is to know about that subject. And therefore, you don't need to learn all of that. So in terms of how to approach lectures, what I would advise is a bit of preparation, not a huge amount. Work out what the main areas are going to be. So you're building almost a framework of what you're expecting to learn from that lecture. And that might be by looking at the aims and objectives of the lecture before you go in or the intended learning outcomes is what they often call them. And so at the end of the session, if you've not picked up on the last points, you know there's perhaps a gap there and you should go away and read, check the lecture notes again. Mm -hmm. Secondly, when you're in the lecture, try and understand. Don't spend all your time writing it down because you can, you can go back to the recording. Try and engage with the information. Make notes about what interests you, what you have questions on, but don't try and capture everything because it's already out there. There's the recording. There's probably a transcript. There'll be textbooks and research articles that already cover this stuff. But just try and, I guess, be in the moment and get that motivation going if you can. And then afterwards, you want to consolidate your knowledge around the lecture. So follow up on your notes, answer any questions that you had by looking into little bits of research. And that way, you're kind of repeating that knowledge. You're going back to it three times. So you've got your framework at the beginning, you've seen the lecture, and then you're refreshing it again in your notes. And then when you come to do revision, you might then be thinking about, well, how do I use this to answer exam questions? And so you're reviewing it again a fourth time. And hopefully it's got in there at that point. <laughs> hopefully mm. you've learned it. <laughs> a tip I have for making the most of lectures as well, it might be quite obvious, but I would say sit close to the front or at least, you know, sort of at eye level so you can see properly, you can hear the lecturer properly, but also there's that accountability because they can see you. Don't sit right at the back because actually you're more obvious than you think to your lecturer because they look up, they're speaking to a room, they will see the students at the back anyway. So there's no escaping them. But more than that, it just helps you to pay attention if everything is clear in the lecture. So, you know, the de little details count as well. Yeah. So lecture sizes can range from 30 to 600, depending on which subject area. So I think business uh, courses quite often have a large cohort um, and law actually is starting to get bigger numbers. What you described earlier on with the class sizes do sound quite similar to seminars and tutorials. You know, you're talking about a group size that's more intimate, where you feel like you're able to ask questions and there's the accountability and it feels a bit more informal. And then some other classes are a little bit more like seminars. Obviously, you don't have anything as big as a lecture. So I feel like maybe without realizing you, you have got experience of attending something similar to seminars and tutorials already. Yeah, I guess one of the differences, you may be expected to prepare for classes quite a lot at college, but in seminars and tutorials, you'll usually be given something that you really should, you must have read. And so, you know, you just make sure you do that reading or whatever preparation is required because you'll be expected to contribute to the discussion. And it's such an awful session if it's just the, the tutor leading the session, asks a question, puts a question on the table and everyone just sits there and goes, don't make eye contact. I've not done any of the background <laughs> reading. <laughs> and sometimes the discussion might be structured in different ways. So when I was a student, 
We used to have kind of informal group presentations. So we were assigned different passage to read each in in the groups. And then you were encouraged to meet beforehand and talk about it. So you had a little mini presentation and then a discussion. So it was even more scaffolded than that, just to kind of structure the seminar a little bit better and make sure that people had things to say. And there might be various versions of group-based learning. So there's things like problem-based learning and team-based learning, but it's essentially group work. Um, so sometimes you're given a problem and maybe some clues as to what to read and mm-hmm. send off to kind of research it yourself and then come back and present it in some way. So maybe it's um, a report or write it up as a grant proposal or present it as a poster. But you'll always be given some kind of support as to uh, what's expected in terms of any new assignment types. Any questions about seminar? My sister's going into third year right now, mm-hmm. so she's mm-hmm. prepared me. I definitely feel like I've learned a lot about uni. Yeah. <laughs> but when you go, you don't know what to ask. Like, you just ask what everyone went to an open day, and I asked someone what the workload was like for their course, and they said they're like, oh, yeah, it's not too bad. Like, obviously, it's a lot of hard work. You know, it is. It's a... And then I was talking about their A-levels, and they're like, oh, yeah, I took four A-levels. And I was like, oh, okay. So your level of, like, being able to cope with work probably isn't the same as my... <laughs> as me being able to, like, not drown under too much... Sometimes I feel like you don't actually get an accurate representation. Yeah, yeah. But it might surprise you to know that actually uh, the number of hours for each module is specified. Uh, Not all students actually know this, which is a surprise. Um, So a module will have a certain number of credits. So it might be 30 credits. The next module is 30 credits. And these add up to, I think it's 180 credits per year or something along those lines, maybe 120. I can never remember the numbers. Um, But each credit is equivalent to 10 hours. So a 30 credit module is worth 300 hours of study. And so that's split into things like lectures, seminars, uh, practicals, reading, and this big chunk, which is independent study. And that is your own time to kind of spend on assignments and background reading and preparing for exams. So it gives you a ballpark of, you know, how much work you're expected to be doing. So it's it's kind of nine till five type job, really, you know, those types of hours per week. It's good to know. Yeah, I didn't know that. No, I didn't know that. (laughs) So if it's a 15 credit, you put less effort in than if it's a 30 credit. Okay. (laughs) And if you're on a module that happens to have, you know, low contact hours, it's probably because you're meant to do more independent study. So as an English student, I used to have 10 hours of lectures a week, which was very little compared to engineering students. And it was because I was in my bedroom all the time reading their various books. What were your contact hours like, Alex? Um, very long, actually. Um, I think it used to be about 26 hours a week. Mm. That kind so, of thing. Yeah. Then yeah. It can be quite a contrast depending on what course you pick. So with philosophy, you probably have fewer contact hours in terms of lectures and seminars. Yeah, because there'll be lots of lots of reading and things like that. Yeah, yeah. But you'll probably find also that your seminars are quite structured to what you're already used to because you're saying about was it RS? Yeah. And talking about different philosophers' point of view, that's going to be quite similar, I think, to some of the sessions you'll be doing at university. <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> so, could you tell us a bit about um, the types of assignments you do at the moment? So in terms of, you know, an example question, maybe, or how long they are and what the expectations are in terms of um, what markers are looking for. What what are the characteristics of a good assignment? 
it's quite clear with a lot of subjects what makes it good and what makes it what when you screwed up like (laughs) (laughs) in rs our biggest question is a 30 marker and i usually write about four pages like so it's not yeah but in handwriting and you have like a1 and a2 and you've got to make sure that you've got both so it's like facts and evaluation so you know what you need and you know it's easy to revise the, the facts you know we've been doing that since forever but it's being able to evaluate that that's that's what I enjoy about humanities as well because you've got to be able to be look at it and make a judgment yourself and have an, you can actually have an opinion on that okay um, so you're not doing coursework then it's all exam based is it or? in RS it's exam yeah we have three three papers. yeah three papers for RS but they're all two hours and that's it so they're all worth a third of our uh, grade each but in art it's different isn't it yeah so in art we have well we have so we've got to write essays so we we get to pick a theme at the beginning and then you do quite a bit of work on that so you've got essays you write about different artists and you have to produce work inspired by it or copies of different artists and then for the actual exam they'll like give you a theme and you've got to create like a piece of art for it and like obviously prepare for that and then you get like a quite a long like I think it goes over several days mm. yes you're like I think it's 15 hours um to produce the work so it's like quite different from my other subjects so the rest mm-hmm. of them I'm sat in an example and then that one I'll just be staring at a piece of paper for a really long time <laughs> okay yeah so at university um a typical split is uh 30 of a module's marks will be for an essay and it might be 1,500 words might be up to like 3,000 so it depends about... on the credit waiting for the module it does it does so one of the things that you will discover about university is that there, <laughs> there are very strict rules about formatting and presentation. And I think it it has evolved from um, training people up to be able to publish, because if you publish it's a journal, they will give you, you know, this type of font, this type of heading. It must be underlined like this. You must use these headings. Don't use any italics or underlined things in bold and they're very, very specific. So I think that's filtered through to how students are expected to submit work. So, you know, you'll be told font size. Sometimes you're told margin sizes. Oh, wow. And that would be <laughs> a hangover from when work would have been bound into like a manuscript mm-hmm. or something along those lines. <laughs> so it, it can be a bit of a surprise. Yeah. yeah <laughs> but, but just to reassure you, though, the margins are likely to be the default setting in work. Yeah, just, anyway. yeah. <laughs> so you might have to worry about double spacing, but in most cases, you'll get used to it. And once you've done formatting for one essay, it's very likely that subsequent ones are all the same. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it's a little investment at the start to get it right. And then you don't have to worry about it too much. Yeah. <laughs> I worry about technology. <laughs> I'm so bad at it. I just quite like having a piece of paper and just being able to write. <laughs> but at least you can correct your mistakes easily. Because you're going yeah. to have to do editing as well, aren't you? So yeah. if you edit on a piece of paper, it'll be a lot more work than editing a typewritten piece of work. So that's 30% of a module mark. The other 70% is usually an exam. So that's at the end of the module or at the end of the year. Quite a heavy weighting, but I guess you're coming from it being a 100% exam. So actually having a 30% essay mark in the bag already is quite nice in some ways. Mm-hmm. On the course that I did at uni, it was different. I, In my whole English degree, I was assessed by essays only. And I had one exam for linguistics, which anecdotally I got 52% for. And my mum was very disappointed because she said you had one exam to worry about because you not have done better in it. 
And my take was, well, I'm not good at exams, and that's why I chose a course that doesn't have them. So just tangentially, that might be one thing you might want to think about as well, is how are you going to be assessed? So expectations at university um, will be quite clear. It will be set out in a rubric or a marking criteria. So it's really important to get hold of one of these and kind of work through it and understand what it means. A marking criteria is what you need to perform for each grade boundary. For a first class mark, you need to demonstrate independent reading. And evaluation of resources. Yeah. Excellent standard of criticality. Coming up with ideas, no errors good understanding of the subject area. Rubrics, on the other hand, um, take that type of information, but break it down into more detail. So it might say, so um, looking at a certain assignment, you will have an introduction, a methods, a results, and a discussion. Uh, in the introduction, we expect to see this, and these are the types of marks you'll get for it, you know, 10% for this and whatever. And the same for the other sections. Or it might be split down into things like um, the learning objectives. So we want students to be understanding the information. If they totally understand it, they get, you know, 10% for this. Um, if they demonstrate good critical analysis and evaluation, they get, you know, 25% for this, that type of thing. And so it breaks down the mark in different ways. So it's really important to have a look at those. Um, so you can use it to assess other examples of work so you can you know look at it and play around with uh, maybe something that's been published and say you know how do I think this measures up to it or how does my work measure up to it because that means you then have a good understanding of how you're going to perform when it is actually marked it'll help you spot things which you need to correct and so ideally you correct those then you submit it but you have a good idea of you know well uh, what mark you're going to get so I really think I've hit everything here, so I'm expecting a high mark, or actually, I only had two hours on this after I crawled out of bed, <laughs> you know, because I was focusing on something else. So I know I'm not going to do that well, but it helps you kind of manage that impact of getting your marks back a little bit. And do you get given those types of things? Because at A-level, um, in our classes, our teachers will literally just give us um, a mark scheme, basically, and uh, an example um answer to a question and we'll go through what was good about it and what was bad about it and then we'll like rewrite the answer um better Brilliant. because we have like um all of these bullet points about um things you need to include mm -hmm. um but we get given that directly so is it the same at uni or do you have to go searching for it no or? you'll probably have to search for it so at university they use uh, the you know the digital learning environments and things like that um so it should be available within um your module area and if not, you know, ask because they should be offering these types of things because it's such a, an important learning tool. Mm. You'll also get feedback on your submitted assignments. So that's something that is really useful to review and apply to subsequent ones. However, I have noticed that on some modules, they're tending to give general feedback for the whole course, like the whole cohort, which I think can be a little bit trickier because, you know, if you're quite new to university, it can be difficult to know whether what's being said about the assignments in general applied to yours, the support departments who can help you with your academic writing. There are people like that who are experienced with it and can help you with that at university. Yep. So it might be useful to say something a bit about marking expectations. So in that previous podcast, we were talking about, you know, grade boundaries. Mm -hmm. It's a bit like they shift. So tell me a bit about um, how things are marked, what kind of range of marks you get at A-level. What's a 
you know, what's a satisfactory mark if you've kind of just yeah. done okay? So that are where we're at now, you'd probably want to be like, or maybe, yeah, just where we're at now, you could be like a, a grade lower than what you want to get. So if you wanted mm. A and you were getting Bs, you'd probably be happy at like the progress you were making. Is that what? At the end of year 12, you I think you make the most progress in year 13. So if you're if yeah. you're at a B, then you're you're not just gonna get an A, you'll probably get an A star because I mean I don't know for sure, but I feel like you make a lot more progress in year thirteen <laughs> than you do in year twelve. I'm sure you do, you know, when you've got that deadline looming. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm not that optimistic, but yeah. oh, well I hope so. <laughs> we do get quite a lot of marked work, so we know what, especially in our RS, we get she just will we'll do something in class and then we'll get given a question on it. And then the next time we're back in, we'll hand it in and we'll know what we've done wrong and we can improve on and then we can work on it. So we get quite a lot of constant feedback to to see where we're at and if we're improving and what we need to work on. I think that's different in different subjects. Because sometimes subjects are easier to mark. Like I think mm-hmm. with art, it's so subjective that yeah. at the end of the day. And also, mm. if it like it depends on what everyone does. So when they come in and they support and they make sure it's all even... Um, moderation that's it that's the one and when they moderate it you know your grades could just change quite differently to what the teacher thinks you're going to get and we saw a lot of that with the um epqs Mm. that the teachers predicted one thing and they got quite different which is i think usually they are quite accurate predicting it so i think some years you just don't really know yeah yeah there's been a a change in how it's assessed the grade boundaries i think sometimes they're always like, oh, we'll find out yeah. and then we'll come back to you and you know how you do. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I wanted to ask about percentages. So do you get marked out of 100 on anything? No, so that doesn't happen anymore. I don't. So is it just A, B, C? Yeah. yeah. So I'm just thinking, if you did um, a maths test, for mm. example, what would be like an A or an A star? In it? I think like 65% or something. But the thing is, I think what I find difficult is they have like generic um, grade boundaries that they'll put on the board. After We get our test back and they'll mm. put grade boundaries on the board. And I'm like, but that is not specifically for this test, obviously. So it's for the actual A-level. It was like the last year's A-level yeah, grade boundaries yeah. or whatever. So then it doesn't really apply because the assessments you're doing in year 12, they're nothing like um, the ones you're doing at the end of year 13, your actual A-levels, because, well, you've only done half the, <laughs> half, the top, half the topics, but also... They're just formatted in a different way. Okay. Yeah. Oh, in maths. Especially. Yeah, then they just give us the closest to what they think would be accurate. And then that's what they Yeah. Judge. So yeah. it's like based on their like years of teaching and yeah. what they think. Okay. Usually but that's what I saw. But I think in um RS with essays, it's a bit different. I think they have um there's levels, remember? Yeah, there's obvious things that if you didn't include something, you wouldn't get higher than that so much. So if you didn't include a con- a conclusion um you might get capped at a certain yeah, grade yeah. so then you wouldn't be able to progress and then obviously that's yeah so they okay. put you I think say you'd get um as four levels or something like that and you get put right in the middle of the level and then they say are you a good level four or a bad level four or are you a yeah something like that so then that's how you get your um actual mark okay so I was wrong then mm, so clearly. back in my day it used to be you know things were generally marked out of 100 um and so good students would be getting in the top end of that, like 80%, 90%. And so when those students went to university, it felt like a bit of a shift. I just got grades at, at yeah. A-levels. So 
I got two C's and a D. <laughs> and I think that was based on a certain percentage range. So like a C might have been like 50 to 60%, say, but then they didn't give you the exact percentage. They just gave you the grade. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the point that I want to make is that um, at college, it feels like you could potentially, or it used to feel to me, that you could potentially get up to 100% if you got everything correct. Yeah, you can definitely. We've seen 30 markers in RS, like um, an example 30 marker where they got 30 out of 30. Yeah, we like seeing, we always say to our teachers that we're just a bit difficult, I think. We're like, but did they get that one in the whole of their paper? We're, we're like, we always want to know whether that's just like, they've done really well on this question. They screwed up. Like, because they spent the, their entire two hours on the 30 marker. The question that annoys me is like, I want to see their whole paper. Yeah, like, did yeah. they do well across the board? Or yeah, did they, they do well? Yeah, that's around. the only thing that yeah. I was like yeah. hmm, suspicious. <laughs> but yeah, I think when we the actual A levels when you get tested, yeah, it's like the percentage you'll get like a certain amount obviously get higher. But when we do it in school, I think they just if we do it like an end of term, they'll look at the year before and what they got and then put us into those okay. grades. I think that's mm. the thing. Okay. So at university, um you get marked out of a hundred in some ways. Um, <laughs> however it's impossible to get 100 percent. It, it's not applied in the same way if you're doing a, a quiz or you know a maths test it's probably different but um when you see marking criteria it'll have anything less than 40 percent is a fail anything between 40 and 50 percent is a third mm-hmm which is mm. <laughs> could do better. <laughs> I wasn't, no, am I getting it right? No, that is because 14, 50. 51 to 60 is a 2-2, second lower class. Yeah. Um, and then 60 to 70 is a 2-1, and yeah. then anything above 70 is a first. So anything above 70% is considered pretty damn amazing. <laughs> but very few people get firsts. You know, you're talking about a very small fraction. Mm-hmm. Um what 10 20 percent i would oh, wow, say really so only if you yeah so basically the majority of people will get between that 50 to 60 no 60 to 70, no, 60 to 70. yeah uh, but then another big chunk will get the 50 to 60 which is the, the 2 2 the 2 2 and the 2 1 so those are where you usually where the majority of students will yeah. yeah yeah so it can be a bit of a shock if you are at all used to scoring 80s or 90s mm-hmm. because to get an 85 it has to be pretty incredible it'd be near publishable wouldn't it yeah I you know you have just seen. you have just discovered something <laughs> basically <laughs> so what you're having out of 100 then that's that what's... is the question yeah that yeah, is the question <laughs> but i guess it? you know it would seem somehow dissatisfactory to just say you know 75 or something because it's like a number plucked out of thin air isn't it Mm. Or is that like zero to a hundred is something that we're used to? So maybe that's yeah. part of the transition. I don't know. It is. It is. It, it's changing your understanding of how it works. So if you get seventy and above, that's really that's brilliant. You are totally on track. That's crazy. Seventy <laughs> yeah. percent, awesome. Um, sixty to seventy, still pretty good, but room for improvement. So if you get those types of marks, <laughs> you know, don't put yourself down because a lot of people get those and freak out and think, mm. you know, ah. Oh, yeah. Why is it so low? Yeah, yeah. I tried everything. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah. you did. That, that's the best. <laughs> you got the best in the class. You're brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> 
But it, it, well, if it helps think of it in terms of the first the two one two yeah. two, yeah, if you've yeah. got a first class mark, that's brilliant. And the thing is, everyone else is going to be in the same boat as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so should we break down what, like, generally what those grade boundaries might mean as well? So, like, for example, with a two two, um, it's very likely that you produce a decent answer to the question, but perhaps you needed to do a bit more wider reading and definitely editing was probably lacking. So a lack of structure and specificity. So perhaps you might have made too many like sweeping statements without pinpointing exactly what the evidence is, because a lot of academic writing is evidence-based. With a 2-1, I would say that, you know, the research was pretty good, like pretty relevant sources that you've engaged with. But for the most part, probably the structuring was the problem, again, because that adds a lot to the clarity of your work. And so with um, with a first class piece of work, you know, everything has come together. And it also then means that, you know, the level of sophistication in your writing, so your engagement between the resources, the evidence, and your evaluation is very well integrated in your writing. And that is something that takes a lot of practice. So um, it might come naturally to some people, you know, they're used to writing or if they've drafted and redrafted their work, but chances are it's not something that would be that natural. You know, you would need a few drafts to kind of get to that stage. Is that right? Is that actually how it works at school? Like the grading? Sometimes the grades can depend on whether they marked your assignment before after lunch or whether yeah. they had a copy or not. Yeah, or the quality of paper it's submitted on. That's what one of Obviously. my psychology uh, lecturers told me. Um, if you if you're handing in hard copies, um, mm-hmm. print it on good quality paper, and it just influences the marker a touch. And anything that can give your marker a good impression and put them in a good mood and help them enjoy your assignment and That's not job. So like being able to read handwriting <laughs> it's not it's it not is. your job but it is your job now yeah, <laughs> yeah. markers are human at the end of the day yeah so yeah yeah i think that's that's why those um guidelines for publishing came about because imagine if you know people submit manuscripts with all different types of paper things that have gotten wet or coffee spilt on it or like a font that you can't read or yeah. you know the cartridge wasn't working and it was like kind of faded that would be pretty frustrating wouldn't yeah it? yeah so you wouldn't be able to ensure like a fair review of someone's submission mm-hmm. yeah okay so during your um, A-level studies, if you do have any problems, um, you know, you don't understand something or you don't understand how to approach an assignment or something, uh, what do you do with that? You can 100% go to your teacher. <laughs> like, they are so there for you. Like, they they really do care at A-level, or at least in, in my experience. It might not be the same at all, yeah. all six forms, but um, all of my teachers, I'd be really happy to go to if I was struggling with, like, an essay or... A, a topic in chemistry or maths or whatever um and they would be like yeah that's absolutely fine I'll explain it to you whenever whenever they're free you can email or yeah find them in school and they're completely happy to talk to you about it sometimes they'll give you a way longer answer than you yeah. really, especially when they're like a lot of my teachers are quite passionate about their subject yeah they're happy they, they do they're teaching it for a reason so if you ask they'll obviously they'll want to give you an answer and they also they want you if we get set an essay um, in philosophy for example she wants us to understand the topic so if I don't understand the topic I can't write an essay on it so mm-hmm. I can go to her and um she'll re- she'll re 
reteach the whole thing <laughs> in a quick in a quick manner. But um, yeah, no, they're, they're really they care a lot. Yeah, mm. I think the only time I feel they're like, oh no, it's because you know sometimes they're just busy. That's the only time mm. when it feels difficult. Yeah, especially at A level. Yeah, some yeah. of them because some of the sick form staff are also like have higher roles in the school. So that's sometimes when it feels a bit like, oh no, they, yeah, they need to go, you know, off and patrol the corridors for vaping. the students vaping in the toilet. Exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but there's also just like because we've known. I mean, our sick form's pretty small, but we've known most people since like. Yes, so there's plenty of group chats and someone's probably lost and there's always that student who's got all the notes so like because you know everyone and it's quite like we were all in the study centre together you could literally turn to the table next to you and be like does anyone know what was yeah. happening does anyone have the textbook yeah literally you just, yeah. Like, yeah. because you're all there and if you're in the same subjects you've probably got the same freeze and stuff so yeah. you can, mm. that helps so you can just be like what's the work what's the homework <laughs> that's quite convenient <laughs> so you can kind of cultivate that at university as well you know uh, get yourself a group of people like-minded people and you know go to the library and do some form a study work. group yes and yes. discuss issues have you know philosophical debates together <laughs> and stuff that's mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you think you'd do at university do you think it'd be a similar experience or i think it I'm sure it, it's not that bad, but it seems much more intimidating because you've, I've known all of my teachers since year seven um, and they've they've taught me before and you have like a more personal connection with them because there's only like eight or whatever in my class. So they just it just feels like easy to go to them, whereas a lecturer stands like meters away from you talking about some big topic. It just feels a lot more intimidating to email them or go to their office. Mm. yeah it's definitely just I think I think it's just it feels overwhelming thinking about it and I'm sure that when we get there we'll yeah be, it might we'll be. like be able to find our way through it but like it's just the idea of it and what we hear and you're I feel like you often hear more bad stories than pit yes. positive <laughs> Go on. ones can you share a bad story oh I don't know you sort of like when you someone tells you about I don't know it's a lecture they had that was just really like unhelpful or something and you know and it's probably just one but they like just didn't get on and they didn't understand or people I've had people being like they took a a uni course obviously and then there's just like one module and they just like hated it and like they didn't have to do it forever but they just found it so hard to get through it that it's sort of like a bit of a damper on their hole (laughs) like that's the thing they go home and tell whereas actually it's probably not and they probably had a, a great time at uni. Yeah. Like, of course they, of course they did. <laughs> Hopefully, anyway. We always need to vent about the bad stuff, don't we? It's like a little outlet. It's good for your mental health. <laughs> yeah. 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 So you, we talked about, you talked about, you know, talking to the person at the next table and asking for notes and stuff. And Alex mentioned study groups. But also, you know, amongst the staff at university, there are a lot of support networks available. So you have a personal tutor, you've got your module tutor, you might have a module convener as well on top of that. So if for whatever reason, you're not getting a response for someone in particular, like if it's during the holidays and you might have a module tutor who is hourly paid, for example, they might not get back to you because they're not paid during that time. You can still approach your module convener. Um, you can definitely approach a personal tutor for help with like any pastoral issues. So if you're just kind of struggling on your course generally and you just want to talk to someone, um, then do approach them for help. And and then there are lots of other support departments as well. So if you need help with finding resources, you can go to a library, talk to your academic librarian. 
If you need help with assignments and structuring essays, you can talk to academic skills people. And if you just need, you know, a bit of a mental health check or something, there's usually a well-being team on campus um, and someone you can see on a kind of more counselling type level. But the student union is also a really good resource. So um, there are lots of clubs and societies which are kind of part of the student union. And, you know, we strongly advise that students join a few clubs and societies, not too many, but, you know, like maybe two might be a good number just so that there's a good balance between activities outside of the curriculum and your course, and you can kind of balance everything. But also, you know, you have that opportunity to form those friendship groups, those support groups that'll help you through when times get tough. Um, but the student union has advisors who can also help you with curricular-based um, questions as well. So if you're having any problems with your course, with completing assignments or anything like that, they can advise you on how to submit an application for mitigating circumstances. So for example, if you're ill or something happens at home, or um, if you want to appeal a grade. So the process does vary between universities and there are usually a lot of rules and regulations around it. And at where we work, you can't appeal a grade just because you're unhappy with the mark you got. So there has to be a good reason for it. But the student union would be able to advise you on official matters like that, but also support you with, you know, pastoral things too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I guess it depends as well on the question type. So mm -hmm. if it's something factual, quite simple, such as when's the deadline for such and such? Um, where do I go for this? That information is likely to be made available in the digital learning environment. So it's a good idea to look for it first and then talk to some of the other people on your course and see if they found it. <laughs> Maybe the school office or, you know, the admin team that supports the course. Um, but you can imagine um, if it's a lecture on a course of 600 students and half of them email to yeah. say, um, what's the deadline for this? They can get a little bit touchy about that. Um, so, you know, use that resource carefully. So mm -hmm. it's more if you have more complex questions. So if it is a mitigating circumstances situation or if it's something about the topic area or finding something in terms of background reading. Um, about the subject, then you might approach the tutor. Quite often, lecturers actually do like it when people come up at the end of the session and ask them a question, or maybe go out into the corridor with them and ask the question, because usually you have to get, get out of the over, lecture theatre for the next class. Mm. Um, but, you know, most lecturers are really passionate about what they teach and yeah. would like to students to be passionate about it too but also i think they like that feedback you know it's like how did this land for the students today you don't get much feedback in a lecture because it's a sea of faces <laughs> so having that kind of human contact is quite useful for them as well okay so i think our final area that we want to look at mm -hmm. is how is knowledge treated you know what do we mean by knowledge so um, i'll start with the question of what do you think a fact is at a level what your textbooks said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Whatever's on the board. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I feel like it is a little bit what you need to get written down to get the marks is sort of what the fact will be, you know. Even at GCSE, we were told, you know, they'd hint that actually what we were being taught wasn't like the full truth. Or like those yeah. is actually a lot more complicated. But it's like a dumbed down version so we could get the marks. 
And it's like, you know what? Yeah, when I can pass and Yeah, when I first started um chemistry A level, they were like, okay, so forget half of the rules that we taught you at GCSE because they work for GCSE but they don't work for A level. Yeah. Because it's a lot more complicated. I feel like we learned um, a while ago that sometimes you do just have to at A level and just write what you've been told. It doesn't yeah. necessarily matter if you agree with it or if you found something else out because if you get the mark at the end yeah. of the day, you'll pass and it's fine. I think that's what I'm most excited about for uni, though, is because when you're writing essays at uni, it's not just, like, regurgitating mm-hmm. things. It's You can actually put your own opinion in, and that's what I, like, at, in our um, religious studies um, lessons, we're having loads of discussions about our opinions and stuff. Mm-hmm. But then when it comes to the essay, you can't put any of that in. Well, you, you yeah. But you it's, have to make one final decision and you can't keep going it's back not, and it's forth. The things, it's not an opinion. It's just like whether you agree or disagree. Yeah. And it's not like personal. It's just like... It doesn't matter if you hear something and, and actually yeah. disagree with what you just wrote down. Yeah, exactly. But, yeah, I think what you said that I thought was interesting is that only really like not as many subjects do evaluate things. Like if you're taking a STEM subject, from what I've heard, like you just write down anything. So like having to go into uni and then write an entire essay and make judgments and evaluate lots and lots is quite a big it's got to be quite a big jump in the way you're sort of getting marked yeah but you can take it in quite a gradual way but no um yeah you're exactly right um there's a, a shift from you know thinking of knowledge as being um you know the truth the facts in this textbook this is just how the world works it's it's more complex not surprisingly it's more fluid isn't it it is because you know over time research changes what people accept as being the truth of how something is change Mm. but in lots of areas um even in stem um like if it's cutting edge research people will be disagreeing one lab will be saying oh but this is how the universe works and the lab will be saying no it's something different it can depend on the sample group that they choose can't it it can depend on all sorts of things. Yes, lots of variables, but that's a bit complicated. It might be reassuring for you to know, though, that within the STEM subjects, they take students through the transition. Mm. So in the foundation of first year, it's still very much geared towards um, understanding the foundations of that subject. So like, for example, what is DNA or what is a chromosome, that kind of level before you get to the, you know, more evaluative side of things with research articles and then on to formulating a research project or dissertation in your final year which is when it gets really exciting because that's when you get to take things in your own direction and really explore your own interests over a number of months I don't think I realized how much you could like if you're enjoying something you could read into like you could expand your own research on it you know I think I thought it was a bit more like this is the module you'll go to this. Sometimes at some point in the future you get to choose. I don't think I quite realised how. I mean, I think it can depend a little bit. Um, There are several factors. So it can depend on the discipline. I mean, some disciplines are naturally more kind of open to that sort of thing. So, for example, if you're studying media studies, then even the resources that you'll be using are going to be a lot more diverse than in STEM subjects, which will be more kind of research papers based on experiments and stuff like that. Whereas if you're doing media studies, then you can go and look on Twitter and you can look <laughs> on Instagram, um, obviously for very serious purposes. But also it can depend on 
the academic. And sometimes, you know, we were saying earlier on about when you submit your work, make sure it's in a state that's pleasurable for them to read. And you kind of got to think a little bit about their preferences as well. And so if they're the sort of person who's maybe not open to certain perspectives, then you might not want to kind of push that as much with that person. What do you sounds think? Sounds a bit Alex? cryptic, Tracy. That's what that sounds like. Yeah, oh, sorry. Maybe there are other ways of putting For it. example, Tracy is correct as ever. Uh, so when <laughs> I did my PhD Viva, um, you know, I did my solid bit of research and it was looking at locusts and how their wings develop. And I rediscovered a fact that, you know, it's already been documented, but people had forgotten about it, that partway through their growth, the wings rotate on themselves, they flip round in position. And in my PhD Viva, we had this expert about locust and neurobiology come up from Cambridge. And he said, I don't believe that. That's, you know, I don't believe your research. Fine. And then he said um, about another part of it where I was looking at um, the maps that you get from neurons in the brain or in the locust uh, nervous system. And he was saying, yes, but you should focus more on this and expand this section purely because that was his research area. So, yeah, it was very much about his own preferences there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that oh. example, Alex. <laughs> um, but it's true, people, you know, have their own belief systems. Mm-hmm. And if you write something that agrees with that to some extent or gently argues something else, then it will fit in with that. And they'll you know, think, oh, yes, that makes sense. Happy with that. Whereas if you challenge them too much, and it might be just challenging them over whether you're allowed to put subheadings in or not. <laughs> it might be something personal where, you know, one academic believes a certain school of thought and yeah. then another yeah. academic doesn't. And if you're kind of agreeing with that other academic who, because disagrees, you know, it might be a bit of tension between them and your marker. Mm. So that could get you into a bit of trouble. Basically, like, people have personalities. That sounds like such a struggle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. People have personalities. And I mean, the thing is, when you go out into the working world, that's something that's going to be yeah. that's going to continue anyway. So you know, university is just an exercise in navigating a more yeah. diverse range of personalities. I would say that it would only contribute to a small percentage it's, of your mark. That's it's how that it kind should of be. Like, it could go either way, and they, yeah. you know, choose one over the other. Yeah, I hope. And um, this might be quite controversial, but I do find sometimes, you know, with researchers, because they're so engrossed in very specific fields of research that they can't, it's almost like you cannot see the wood for the trees. And and so when you make another su- suggestion, for example, around research bias, or like, what if you investigate this? And they're just like, no, 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 this has been proven. We're here. We're not going there. And I can see that quite a lot with some academics just because that is the world they're in. Yeah, what kind of level? Undergraduate, first year, second year, third year, master's? Oh, no, undergrad. Like, yeah. uh, No, sorry, I mean academics, like mm. published academics who are teaching. You know, I think with the role that we, we're in, under, you know, students tend to be quite open to advice, especially if they've sorted out themselves. So I don't tend to have issues on that front with the kind of being a little creative and reading more broadly around the subject. Most are quite happy to do that. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, so going back to the part about, um, you know, what is knowledge? 
Um, and you were talking about, you know, it's not just kind of like the regurgitating or repeating facts from A-level. Um, there's something called Bloom's Taxonomy, which is very sad to know about. It's a, a way of thinking about different types of thinking skills. And so at A-level, you're looking at recall and um, understanding and kind of demonstrating that in an exam or an essay. Um at university, you're starting to progress to more complex thinking skills, which, you know, you're doing already. It's just you're not allowed to in your assignments, <laughs> which is yeah, interesting. Um, so it's things like applying ideas, theories to different contexts. So case studies, things like that. Analyzing data or um, case studies. Evaluating arguments, research, ideas from other people and then creating your own and arguing those. And those are the types of things that you'll be starting to do at university. So (laughs) (laughs) you guys looked a little apprehensive when Alex said creating your own. And it's not as intimidating as it sounds because it's going to be built upon all those other levels in Bloom's taxonomy. So it'll be based on existing knowledge and you're just either, you know, um integrating two points of view and kind of imposing your own on it or something like that so it's a bit more supported than that so it might yeah it's actually you know quite simple in many ways so Mm. it could be linking two things that's creating new knowledge things that weren't linked previously Mm. it could be taking one idea that you know it's thought of in this area and applying it to something completely different which is new again it's creating new knowledge some of this stuff can be quite easy yeah and like in the arts for example one of my friends um her phd was on productions of taming of the shrew and so if you think about productions kind of there are always new productions of certain um plays and so the reviews would have been done up to a certain point but not taken into account like the newer productions so that was where the new knowledge part came in because she was reviewing as yet unreviewed productions of the taming of the shrew so it's not as intimidating as you might think. <laughs> <laughs> Can be fun. In fact, it should be. <laughs> yeah, it should be fun. And you'll be very well supported with it at university. Yeah. And again, that's something that our little podcast, mm-hmm. Weird Learning, and the courses that we kind of run um, kind of deal with as well. So if this episode is useful to you, do tell your friends about it and subscribe to our podcast so that you don't miss future episodes. And, you know, if you find it particularly helpful, please review it as well, because that helps us to create new content and know what people like and find really useful. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Um, I'm sure our listeners will have found that very insightful. Kind of yeah, very we definitely did. The experiences <laughs> yeah. from A-level. Um, and good luck to you in your future, in your year 13. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Weird Learning Podcast with your hosts, Dr. Tracy Dix and Dr. Alex Patel. Production team, Kia Morand and Patricia Marie Solis. Music by Defects Machine from Pixabay.